This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Bonjour, guten tag, good to have you. Great day here in NYC. Very much uh, excited to get to chill with you for a few hours. Oh me, oh my. Yesterday in on the EIB, always a good time. I uh, hope some of you got a chance to tune in. I hope you also enjoyed my main man, Michael Pelka, Stunt Brain, laying it down here on the Blaze Radio Network. So much of the uh, back and forth still going on with regard to Trump and Russia and hacking. Uh, the president received, I guess it was yesterday, his briefing. And today, uh, the president-elect Donald Trump is receiving a briefing uh, about what we well what the intelligence community has come to i guess believe assess uh, what their official sense of what happened with this russia hacking story really is uh you're seeing a lot of people go on tv and i maybe i'll uh, pull a clip of of jim woolsey the thing is the interviews are kind of lengthy and just run in circles so they're not really great audio for radio purposes unless we just want to sit here and listen to other people talk which as a radio host, that's like not something I generally get excited about. But Jim Woolsey, who's a former CIA director, is a nice guy. I've, I've actually had him I, back in the days of the Buck Sexton TV show on The Blaze, known as Real News Investigates. That's a throwback for some of you. Uh, by the way, I had a belated birthday celebration last night with my family uh, and, uh, and Miss Molly here in New York City. And... My sister made the most amazing birthday card for me, uh, but she she <laughs> she tracked down one of the earlier Blaze photos, and uh, I I do sometimes get the sense that there was somebody in the I don't know what it would be the art department or the probo department at the Blaze who just like as a gag would pull the worst photo of me that they could from the photo shoots and like throw them in the mix because I would it's not like I approved them. They would just all of a sudden turn up, and, and Daisy, my little sister, found one and uh, made a very cute card. But I just look at it like, I cannot believe that some of the some of the stuff that uh, was pulled back in the day, this was not what you would call brand enhancing for Buck. Uh, but I digress. Uh, what was I talking about that for? I don't even know now. I got off on, oh yeah, well, oh, Real News Investigates, which I think is probably also still available online. I think you could probably find it somewhere. Um, we did a series of sort of investigative uh, investigative reports focused mostly on national security. And Jim Wolsey was, if memory serves, one of our guests. Nice guy, CIA director. I wasn't at the agency when he was there. He was there in the 90s, I think, under George. Was it H.W. or under Clinton? I can't remember now. But he was there in the 90s, uh, you know, back when 
Seinfeld and Friends were taking the world by storm, as were Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots. And for some of you, Nirvana, although I've always felt that Nirvana was kind of overrated. I, I, and people yell at me for that. And I want to say, think about this. Think about this. By the way, I feel like more people have come over to my side of uh, my side of the ledger with regard to Miss Mariah Carey and uh, her New Year's Eve performance. You know, how about it? How about like a in a, a gown? You know, why not go for a little a little elegance? I, I think I think Mariah's past the bodysuit stage in her career, the sheer see through body, whatever that thing was. Uh, I thought some of, some people were going to get mad at me for saying that on Rush, and now no, it's. I am advocating for a graceful new phase of her career where it's just about the voice and the music and a little bit less about, you know, shaking that, what do we shake the moneymaker? Is that from the song? It's not one of her songs. It's another song. All right. Woolsey. We're bouncing around. Oh, yeah. It's 888-900-3393 is the phone number, by the way. It's very hard when I go on Rush to not get the numbers wrong or to go 888-727-BECK. 800-282-2882. 888-900-3393. I mean, these things... I sort of twitch at night in my sleep and start saying these phone numbers. And I also always want to say Team Buck when I take over. But I think Rush listeners would be like, huh? So that doesn't work. Uh, but Woolsey got into an exchange with uh, Jim Shudo, who is a, a CNN reporter. Uh, Regis fellow like me. He's sort of the chief national security correspondent. Um, can can sometimes be a little, uh, a, a little unnecessarily... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, prickly on Twitter. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not one of the ones over there that really... There's some over there that really bother me. He's not one of those that really bothers me. We, we, we tend to uh, have a respectful uh, interaction for the most part. Um, I'm always respectful, of course, because I'm super nice and polite. Uh, but he had this exchange with Woolsey, and I was sitting there, and I, again, I, I could play some of the audio for you, but it, you have to really hear the whole thing, and if you, I think at Mediaite and some of those sites that do, by the way, for those of you who don't know, if you ever want to see what the main, this is sort of a fun little tip if you're a real news junkie, sort of the main v cable news video clip of the day, uh, Mediaite.com is a good site to go to, and there's also the video, uh, the video, what do you call it, uh, vertical for real clear politics that's another uh good place to go so if you just want to see what was the sort of snarkiest exchange on cable news you could check out either of those sites and they tend to have them but you had Woolsey and Shuto shooting the stuff about Russia hacking and initially Woolsey sort of starts off with a Look, we all know that everyone's everyone's so interested in this because of Russia hacking, right? Like we we get that. We all understand that this is about the uh, Russian. Uh, I'm sorry, this is about the Russian government helping Trump and undermining, therefore, the Trump victory. And so he goes, he established the politics, but then we sort of get into the running in circles. And I just, I could tell Woolsey wasn't really wasn't really believing what he was saying because what what happens here is. The denial of the entire story is not really possible or is problematic. You've got to put it in context. But, of course, the media loves the context game because that they can manipulate. So once they establish the basic fact of manipulation by the Russians of, um, well, that's not the basic fact, is it? See, I even started to fall into it myself. Once they establish that there's some Russian hacking, then they can transition into, well, we know that they did something to 
influence the election and we can just exaggerate the degree. Some of the Trump defenders are out there trying to prevent that first step of, well, we know the Russians did something, uh, did something from happening. And they have a tough time with that because now the intelligence communities come out and said pretty, I mean, they always hedge, right? And there's actually a pretty good scene in the movie Zero Dark Thirty, which I think is a very good movie. Uh, some people had real problems with it, but I, I, I liked it. I mean, it's, uh, but there's that scene where she says that, you know, certainty freaks you out, so I'll say I'm 99% certain. Uh, that's more or less where the intel community is right now on the Russia hack situation. And I'm going to get into some of the details of this in, in a moment, but uh, Woolsey, former CIA director, who is a Trump transition national security advisor, has, uh, after the interview yesterday in CNN, he has stepped down. And I do not think that that is a coincidence. I think that he realized that there's a a push right now for people who are going to be speaking on behalf of the Trump team to just say that, well, we need more information and whatever. Right. They're never really going to concede that first point that Russia did something. See, I say Russia did something, but it didn't matter, really. It didn't do very much, and it's exaggerated. This would be sort of equivalent to a Republican losing an election and finding out that there were five cases of voter fraud in a state that the Democrats won, and, or, you know, that the uh, Democrats were going to win anyway, and saying, well, what, there was voter fraud in this election. And, well, yes, that's true. And then say, well, since there was voter fraud, then it's illegitimate. See that that's the similar uh, that's a similar leap here, and people would say that the WikiLeaks revelations were uh, much more important than that. Maybe that they you know dominated the news cycle for a period of time or whatever. But I, I think the reality of this is that it's very clear the Democrats want to push this story uh, much further than the facts will go. But they're making problems for the Trump team because the Trump team doesn't want to even they, they're not fighting on the degree of a Russian hack. They're they're saying that they still just don't believe there is a hack and that's going to get harder. And this is why I think one of the Woolsey probably just got sick of, well, you know, standing around and having to uh, defend whatever the Trump administration or the uh, Trump transition team would say. You've got Washington Post reporting. This is the, the breaking news for today on this or from really last uh, last night. So our first chance, our first bite at the apple here. Senior officials in the Russian government celebrated Donald Trump's victory over Hillary Clinton as a geopolitical win for Moscow, according to U.S. officials who said the American intelligence agencies intercepted communications in the aftermath of the election in which Russian officials congratulated themselves on the outcome. So now we're being told this is a leak, by the way. This is a leak of what would almost certainly be classified intelligence from senior officials, which I'm thinking that's the CIA director himself or somebody at that level. I don't know who it is specifically, but it's somebody of that sort of stature in the community is going to the Washington Post to make the case. You'll notice they're making the case before uh, the Trump team can even respond officially to having been briefed on the information. Right, This came out last night. The timing is not coincidental. He's being sandbagged here. He's being intentionally set up. They're being set up. And I think what worked perhaps during the election, I wonder if it's going to continue to work now, which is just never give them an inch. I know that's the Trump team's response to a lot of this stuff, and I can understand why, because the other side is always playing this this game, this fake game of, oh, well, we're just trying to um, 
we're, we're being fair and even-handed. We're just looking for the truth. That's obviously not true. Uh, that's not what the media is doing here. They have a very clear agenda. That's why they're so invested in this. That's why you're hearing so much about hacking. But I don't know if the, the talking point you're hearing from some on the Trump side uh, or as sort of spokespersons for the Trump team that we don't know if the, we don't believe the intelligence and that Trump himself has said, you know, I don't believe it or, you know, it's not settled yet. That's going to be a harder position for them to hold. They really need to be fighting on the on the level, I think. But then again, I didn't defy all expectations and, and win an election against all the conventional wisdom. So I, I understand that. But I think the better argument for them to be making is, OK, so, yeah, Russia, Russia hacks just like they've always been hacking things. And whether Russia is excited. I mean, I can tell you this. Think of all the terrible regimes all over the world. Do you think the Iranians wanted uh, wanted a Republican in the White House or Barack Obama? Pretty sure the Iranians were much more excited about a Barack Obama in the White House. You think the let's even take it a step further. If Ham, if Hamas got to pick our next president, would Hamas prefer Barack Obama or would Hamas prefer Donald Trump? Would Hamas prefer Hillary Clinton or you know you could play this game all day? And I think very clearly um, most of the countries around the world that are in opposition to us, most of the entities that are adversarial or just straight up enemies would rather have a Democrat because Democrats believe in consensus building and multilateralism and using the, you know, going to the U.N. first and repeatedly and always. And Republicans sometimes are like, now we're just going to drop some bombs. I mean, this is the uh, generally speaking, this is the way that I think the rest of the world views our political parties. So Russia wanting Trump to win isn't really all that relevant uh, or, or, or isn't as meaningful as the Democrats want to believe that it is. Um, perhaps it's a reversal of what's standard practice, but there are plenty of countries that have a, an interest in the outcome of the U.S. election. And by the way, it has been pointed out that the State Department did fund a group that was specifically trying to get Netanyahu's opposition elected in Israel. So, I mean, let's not let's not this and that's overt and that's not using illegal means but we certainly do intervene and we certainly do speak out about uh, what we think should happen in other elections but i think after today you're going to see a shift in the conversation from did russia hack uh, because you've got top u.s intelligence official uh, this is also the washington post which is clearly the paper of choice for the leaks uh, from the intel community meant to undermine trump Top U.S. intelligence official, Russia meddled in election by hacking, spreading of propaganda. Um, so that's according to Clapper's testimony, DNI, Director of National Intelligence Clapper's testimony yesterday. So they're all saying that they are pretty sure about this. And you could have, well, I'll get into what Barack Obama's next steps could be. But I, I think we're at the point now where it's going to be harder. I mean, it, it would have to be a pretty massive conspiracy for everybody in the intelligence community to believe who has access to this, which is, you know, I don't know how many people that is, but to be lying to the American people, I would say this, if it weren't true, where's the leak from somebody who could just call up, you know, you name your national security reporter at Fox News or a number of other places and say, hey, you know, I'm so-and-so and, -so and uh, they're, they're covering stuff up here. There are enough patriots in the intel community that I have confidence that somebody would do that if this were all, a scam. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the sort of status mentality really has overcome these places in their entirety. All right, we'll be a little bit more on this, and then we'll get into some guests, and then we'll also 
we got some. I got some funky, fun stuff planned for later on in the show today. So we just got to bring you up to speed on all the news, and then we're just going to freestyle Friday it. I'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Show. Reuters reporting that Trump wants to seek a probe of how the secret report that he was given managed to get to NBC News first. Well, probably some very senior politicians decided to pass along or some leaks from inside the intelligence community. Also of interest, you've got WikiLeaks. Uh, and, and this is uncomfortable. When the president, or president-elect of the United States and WikiLeaks are on the same page on stuff. It just automatically gives me a, a moment of pause here. But uh, you got WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks seems very upset that um, this is their tweet. The Obama administration, CIA, is illegally funding, uh, funneling um, top secret uh, information to NBC for political reasons before President-elect even gets to read it. So I guess, yeah, WikiLeaks here is opposed to a leak. <laughs> Look at that. Isn't that an interesting turn of events? So we'll have to see um, where all of this goes. But I, I think that the position of Russia wasn't involved at all in hacking the DNC emails and stuff, I think that's going to become untenable even for the most ardent Trump uh, officials. I think. May, maybe I'm wrong. And I don't know. I, I think Trump also knows how to move on from this. Uh, but the, the media has just latched onto it. It is their absolutely favorite story right now, and they are going to be pushing this until the inauguration and beyond. So we will have to see. We will have to see where all of this is uh, is going. But for right now, I, I got to say, uh, not a not an easy situation to be uh, somebody standing up there and making the case about russia or making the case about how russia was not involved i have heard a lot of people that seem to believe and they've been speaking to me over the last week some of them are fellow media folks and others are just those who reach out to me online they believe the i don't know they believe some of the conspiracies out there some of the conspiracies some believe that uh what was his name seth rich i believe who was uh, gunned down in dc on the street and what seemed to be a botched robbery you know, he was the source. I'm still having people tell me this stuff, and I, I'm not one to look. The media was colluding with the Hillary Clinton campaign, and there was a lot of stuff that's gone on that has undermined our confidence in the in the media even more than it was before. Right? It's one thing to think; it's another thing to know. Now we know that the media was part of the Hillary apparatus. Um, and I am always among the first to tell you that much of the intelligence community leans left, uh, particularly the sort of academic analyst types. 
they are left-leaning. They uh, Many of them hated Bush when I worked for the CIA and were open about how much they hated Bush, even though he was kind of technically their boss. Uh, I just don't see how we get around all this, all the information right now, um, the sort of stonewalling about Russian and hacking. I, I don't know how this continues. Unless you really believe that Julian Assange, who had a show with Russia today, which is funded by the Kremlin, this is a fact, who has FSB, Russian secret police protection at the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK, fact, and who was involved in the lies that uh, Snowden told in order to get asylum in Russia, and he was the sort of middleman on that, and who did a lot of stuff to damage U.S. national security in the past, not as a whistleblower, Assange versus the IC? I think we know what the answer should be. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. All right, we're joined now by Matt Walsh. He is the author of the Matt Walsh blog. He also has the Matt Walsh podcast, which you can get on the Blaze Radio Network and also read his latest at theblaze.com slash Matt-Walsh. Matt, great to have you. How's your week been? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Happy New Year. Uh, let's just start. There's so much of this stuff going on with, with the Trump intelligence briefings and everything else. For you at this point, what's true, what's not? Where are you in all this stuff? I haven't had a chance to ask you about it yet. Uh, as far as which part of it? And whatever part of it strikes your fancy. you got intel briefings happening for the president. you got Trump saying that he's not in agreement with Assange. You've got him also saying that he wants the people to make up their minds. I don't know if you saw Woolsey no longer tied to the Trump team after a pretty rough interview on CNN uh does the do the trump folks have to yeah. just sort of say okay russia did something and, you know what, what are your thoughts on all the stuff that's been breaking this sorry i'm asking you kind of for a, a summary of the last few days but what are your thoughts on what's going yeah, on yeah no, no, no. And, and on top of all this while uh trump is supposed to be getting his intelligence briefings he uh he's he's tweeting this morning about about the apprentice uh you know because, because that's where his priorities lay so so i uh, I, didn't, I didn't even see that but wow okay <laughs> There yeah, we go. He, he tweeted. He, he tweeted this morning about uh, attacking uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger for doing a poor job taking over The Apprentice because they got they got poor ratings. So that that's where his priorities are. So the, the thing is, with you know what what really concerns me, uh, as far as you know Russia's involvement and the the hacking and all that, I I don't you know I, I really don't know what to believe. Although I do believe that Russia obviously was involved, and and I do think it's at least at the very least strange and concerning that Trump is uh, so cozy with them. However, the, the biggest concern for me with, with Trump and all this stuff, with the intelligence briefings, is I, I want, you know, these are things that happen behind closed doors. Um, there's a lot of decisions that presidents make. I would assume the majority of decisions that presidents make, especially when it comes to foreign policy, that are uh, not public. And you just have to take it seriously and do it because it needs to be done. But my concern is, you know, will Trump take, is Trump capable of taking things seriously? especially when they're not in public and he's not going to get any credit for it. So I can't, it's like, what is that like when Trump sits down for an intelligence briefing? Does he actually sit there and listen? And, or, or is he too busy thinking about the next tweet he's going to send about The Apprentice? 
apprentice. That's that's my concern, and and I and I, I do think it's a legitimate one. And I guess we're going to find out how it plays what, out. What do you make of the uh, of one of the reports that came out that uh, that it, depending on how one views this is either really important or some people are completely downplaying it. But it, it does seem a little weird that the DNC, which is not really – people always think of it as a, as a government entity, but it, it's not like – you know the DNC is not like the DOD. I mean, the DNC is, is its own thing. Uh, but that they wouldn't let the FBI into – or they, they sort of uh, stymied uh, – they weren't interested in letting the FBI get actual access to their servers when they initially thought they were hacked. Does does that does that smell funky to you, or is that making a lot out of not so much? Yeah, well, of course it's funky. I mean, if they really want to get to the bottom of what's going on, you'd think they would be that they would say to the the FBI, yeah, come in here and and investigate and, and do what you have to do. Uh, and I think it's clear from you know from from the the emails that we saw. I don't think there wasn't anything that was leaked, as far as I can remember or I'm aware, that revealed for sure actual criminal conduct, but. There were a lot of things that indicated the possibility that things are going on behind the scenes that were maybe not, uh, you know, uh, uh, completely above board. So, yeah, that, that 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 to me is concerning. And so you have that's the problem. You have you have two sides of this. And, um, of course, as is always the case with politics, you, you can't fully trust either side. And I'm always going to be inclined to distrust pretty much everything Democrats say because they pretty much lie about everything. So they've kind of brought that on themselves. Yeah, it's it's been interesting to see the newfound uh, fascination and and fury and and even hysteria over cybersecurity. Uh, Matt, I'm one of the people that got a letter in the mail that just was like, "Hey, just NBD, brah." But the Chinese totes have all of your biographical information, including social security number, everywhere you've lived, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We'll pay for like some free credit monitoring for a couple of months. See ya. Uh, that happened f- to millions of people who worked for the government, and the Obama administration was like, yeah, you know, stuff happens. Then we get this hack uh, of Podesta's emails, which embarrassed some senior Democrats, and I-, I-, and I really don't believe that it actually turned the election. I mean, there's a lot, and that's a, you know, I-, I guess that you can never prove it one way or the other, but nonetheless, the newfound fascination and, and as I said, hysteria over hacking just seems a little too convenient from a lot of journalists and from a lot of Democrats. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing everyone talks about. That we, we've switched sides on on uh, not just the, particularly this issue and a lot of issues, but when it comes to you know cybersecurity, WikiLeaks, uh, uh, hacking, you know, we we have all of a sudden both sides have just all of a sudden switched, and it's a little bit hard for for those of us who are not politicians or who who really try to to have firm principles and to get to the truth it's, it's really confusing it's, it's very it's, it's very dizzying to see how the two sides have all of a sudden switched uh, particularly with WikiLeaks and it's like I, I can I can it, it seems to me it was only I don't know a year ago or or so that the Democrats loved WikiLeaks they, they, and, and it was Republicans attacking WikiLeaks and saying that they're traitors and so on and so forth and it's been a complete and total switch uh, and it's very very <laughs> confusing or i guess it's not really that confusing people just don't have uh, principles and they do what's politically advantageous uh, i also want to ask you about something that this this fascinates me you know one of the things that you often hear is uh is that the way switching gears here to sort of jihad and and all the stuff that's going on in, in the middle east and the attacks against the west and i, I did think that the nightclub massacre uh, that occurred in istanbul which primarily targeted non-turkish 
foreign nationals, Westerners who are at the nightclub, didn't get very much coverage at all on New Year's Eve. I, I think people forgot about that way too quickly. Uh, but we're always told that we're in an information war, an ideological war, and we need to find ways to confront the narrative. The, the BBC has come out with this Real Housewives of ISIS, and my girlfriend tells me the Real Housewives of anything is usually a good show, but the Real Housewives of ISIS is obviously a parody. I just want to play the, the trailer, then we'll get Matt's uh, reaction to this. Here's the Real Housewives of ISIS, courtesy of the BBC. Sarah, do we have that trailer? Yeah, sorry, we're, we're going to get the trailer for you. There it is. Do we have it? Coming up this season on The Real Housewives of ISIS. It's only three days till the beheading, and I've got no idea what I'm going to wear. Abdul seduced me online. He had me at free healthcare. So this is my sixth marriage. Uh, I've been widowed five times. Six times. I'm so glad I've moved over here. It's everything those guys on the chat rooms told me it would be. And it's full of so many wonderful surprises. You didn't have to do this in Birmingham. So, Matt, making fun of, you know, what to wear to attend the beheading. I mean, parody is oftentimes a very effective political tool. There is outrage in the UK, and I'm sure if we were to ask, you know, CARE and other groups here about this. So now we can't even make fun of ISIS. That's considered insensitive. Yeah, my, my understanding about that video is that the women, not that it really matters because anyone can make fun of ISIS, but the women in the video uh, are Muslim themselves. So that's my understanding anyway. And if that's the case, well, first of all, you know, it really takes, it, it does take uh, a lot of courage for, I, I think, to, to do that, in the first, especially as a, as a Muslim. Uh, yeah, it's not like they're in Syria or something like that. But if you're in Europe, I mean, ISIS is all over Europe. And uh, to mock them like that so publicly, make yourself a target, that takes that takes that does take guts. Um, so we should give them some credit for that. And, and I and I think that, you know, every time every time we talk about ISIS, uh, leftists will insist that there are you know, there are plenty of Muslims out there denouncing extremism. And uh, the conservative point is, well, there aren't enough. And then some come out and they denounce extremism and the leftists are mad about that, too. So I, so it's it's kind of like a lose lose situation for for these muslims who are not extremists i guess because they're gonna get criticized either way uh of, of course it's of course it's completely ridiculous and it goes without saying goes without saying that if that video was uh, the same kind of thing but making fun of quote-unquote christian fundamentalists then you know nobody on the left would have a problem with that that's just that's a double standard that we all don't even need to point it out anymore because it's so obvious yeah, but the the effort to make uh, make a mockery of, of ISIS, I do think it's it's important, and and you can see on the other side of of the equation, uh, and, and I know you do too, Matt. But it's it's frustrating to me that this is uh, automatically people say, oh well, this is going to just make create a rise in Islamophobia. It's like no, they're very specifically making fun of ISIS, right? It's not the real housewives of Islam, and yet there still is this outrage over it. I couldn't help but noticing that uh, there's a, a piece in uh, AFP uh, that one of Charlie Hebdo, Charlie Hebdo, everybody recalls um, back in, in uh, a year ago, or was it now two years ago, uh, was shot up by jihadists uh, in Paris and a number of people killed because of its satirical drawings. <laughs> a journalist is leaving there saying, you know what, they won't touch Islam anymore. So, you know, the scare campaign works, actually. Yeah, and I do, and I agree with you that mockery, uh, it's who's who I forget who the quote is from. It was, the, it, was it was in uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters at the beginning of his book. But you know, the, the devil can't stand to be mocked. 
and uh, which of course means that we should mock the devil and ISIS. They they are demonic. They're evil, and I think I think mockery of evil things is um, yeah. These days because we're so sensitive, we uh, people I don't know they 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 feel uncomfortable with it, but. It is ISIS on top of being brutal and uh, and wicked and terrible. It's also absurd what they stand for and what they believe is is truly absurd. And so to have people pointing out, particularly Muslims pointing that out, is really is really powerful. And we we should definitely encourage it, not not get our um, our underwear in a bunch about it. Matt Walsh is the author of the Matt Walsh blog. He also does the Matt Walsh podcast, which you can get uh, under his name at theblaze.com slash Matt-Walsh. Real quick, Matt, before we let you go, what do you got planned for the weekend? Anything exciting? You and the fam doing anything cool? Well, you know what? I wish I could say we were, but we've, uh, I don't know what's going on where, where, where you live, but we've had these, uh, we've had stomach viruses and really bad colds, like devastating this entire state. And it's finally hit our family. So we're, we're kind of hunkering down and waiting for all the, the sickness to to pass over us. I got you. Well, enjoy some Netflix and and feel better to the Walsh clan. Uh, great to great to have you on, Matt. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. Thank you. Phone lines are open. Team eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. Freestyle Friday continues. I'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, hat tip to Matt Walsh for bringing this to my attention, but indeed, there's been a little back and forth between uh, Donald Trump and Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, over The Apprentice. Uh, Schwarzenegger, you know, I, uh, I I can't really do. I have to really think of the Schwarzenegger impression. It's been a while. I always start doing the Conan where it's like, I'm Arnold, I have to do this with my hands, and I raise the heavy things. And, you know, he just sort of yells and does all that. But uh, Schwarzenegger said that, uh, well, no, sorry, Trump said, I just, when I say said, I mean tweeted. <laughs> it's amazing. I think Donald Trump is single-handedly keeping Twitter alive at this point. I think Twitter is in some trouble otherwise. But the Trump tweet has become uh, a, a real sort of cultural icon. But uh, Schwarzenegger, uh, or sorry, Trump t- writes, wow, the ratings are in, and Arnold Schwarzenegger got swamped or destroyed by comparison to the ratings machine DJT, Donald J. Trump. So much for being a movie star. And that was season one compared to season 14. Now compare him to my season one, but who cares? He supported Kasich and Hillary. Uh, Schwarzenegger replied, uh, there's nothing more important than the people's work, real Donald Trump. I wish you the best of luck, and I hope you'll work for all of the American people as aggressively as you work for your ratings. Oh, taking the high road. Schwarzenegger takes the high road. Um, so, yeah, okay, there you have it. Trump and Trump and Schwarzenegger lo- locking horns on Twitter for a second here. I got to say that the, the Schwarzenegger thing, I still... There's a part of me that just still can't really totally grasp uh, some of the personal decisions that he made, but I guess not really, not really uh, 
something we've spent much time thinking about. So there's Trump. There's Schwarzenegger throwing down. I, I guess Schwarzenegger will not have a post in the Trump administration. Um, not that anyone thought that he would. Um, he was a very ineffective governor of California, by the way, um, which was interesting because he was the guy that replaced what was a Gray Davis who was re recalled. Uh, or, or uh, yeah, he was recalled. Um, I think it was Governor Gray Davis. So that's that's the thing that's going on there with Trump and with Schwarzenegger. And uh, we're going to talk to coming up here in a few minutes, a whole bunch of fantastic guests. I'm giving you a little preview of the preview of that right now. We've got Morgan Murphy joining us. He's the author of the book Southern Living Bourbon and Bacon, the ultimate guide to the South's favorite foods. That's right. We have a guest on who is an expert in bourbon and in bacon. So that's coming up next. I think you're going to definitely want to hear some of that. Uh, I wish I could help you taste some of that, but you're going to have to do the shopping on your own. Then we got Brooke Rogers joining from Heat Street, just with the latest that she's fired up about. And then at 2 o'clock, we have Mark Pendergrast, who is the author of a book on the history of Coca-Cola, which uh, this is a producer, Amy, set this one up. That'll be interesting. And then at 2.30 Eastern Time, we have Creek Stewart, who is a survival expert, talking about ways you can survive difficult situations. A zombie apocalypse, the Hunger Games, getting lost in the wilderness, being in a storm or hurricane. So basically, we have a fantastic and varied and fun show planned. So you do not want to go anywhere, team. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We're going to be talking bourbon and bacon. Oh, yeah. Bourbon and shields. Hi. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Um, things that I like, bacon very high on the list. And uh, also, once in a while, I do enjoy a glass of bourbon. We're joined now by an expert in both of those wonderful things, Morgan Murphy is on the line. He's the author of the book, Southern Living Bourbon and Bacon, The Ultimate Guide to the South's Favorite Foods. Morgan also serves as a commander in U.S. Navy Reserves and is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, where he was awarded the Meritorious Defense Service Medal and the Afghan Campaign Medal. So, Morgan, thank you for your service, sir, and thank you for your call. Good to talk to you. Hey, great to talk to you, Buck. All right. I just... I want to hand you the floor. Your man is going to talk to us about bourbon and bacon. You wrote a book on this. Tell us about what you found and how you found it. Well, those are two of my favorite food groups. My four southern food groups are bourbon, bacon, salt, and pie. So I've got half of them. Uh, I call it the food trapezoid. Uh, half of them covered here in this book. So I spent uh, about a year going to uh, distilleries all over uh, the United States because bourbon does not have to be made in Kentucky, as a lot of people think. It can be made anywhere in America. But, but it is named for Bourbon County, Kentucky, right? Correct. It's named for Bourbon County, Kentucky, but Bourbon County actually used to be in Virginia. So this confuses a lot of people and used to be really big. It used to be about the size of the state of Kentucky. 
Uh, and now there's it's, it's shrunken, and there's actually no bourbon made in Bourbon County anymore. Um, but yeah, so but it's named for Bourbon County, Kentucky, and uh, all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. So there's Scotch whiskey and Irish whiskey, Canadian whiskey, you know, and then of course the greatest whiskey in the world, bourbon whiskey. And what makes bourbon bourbon? It has to be made here in the United States. It has to be at least uh, 51% corn. That is the mash bill. The grains that go into bourbon have to be mostly corn. Uh, and it has to be aged in a brand-new oak barrel. It can't reuse the barrels. So that's what gives bourbon. Bourbon is like white like in or clear like any other um, uh, clear alcohol when it comes right off the still. But what gives it that rich amber-brown color is the barrel. Uh, and, of course, Southern sunshine. So I like to call bourbon Southern sunshine in a glass. That's what makes it so rich. That's what makes it such a great uh, American product. It's all natural. You can't add anything to bourbon and still call it. You can't filter it. You, you can't do anything to bourbon. It has to be an all natural product, and it's really cool. And then I spent the next. Is there, is there some regional differentiation, by the way, with the way the bourbon tastes or how it's made? I mean, I know if we had a an expert in barbecue, and I bet if you're not officially an expert in barbecue, given your love for bacon, you probably are a man who enjoys some barbecue. Uh, but there's clearly differences in uh, Southern versus Texas versus other kinds of barbecue, uh, different kinds of bourbon. Give me the give me the rundown on that. Uh, well, the differences in bourbon are profound from distillery to distillery. So I love to make fun of vodka. I apologize to your vodka drinkers out there, but. Uh, vodka is distilled to a point where it is 98.5% ethanol, basically 98.5% alcohol. And if you drank that, it would dissolve your esophagus. So what they do to vodka then is they water it down, uh, back down to a potable level. And when you do that, you know, people talk about, oh, the difference between Smirnoff and Absolute, and I can't stand drinking Tito's versus what. They're talking about the difference in the water, really. Uh, because ethanol is ethanol. But with bourbon, bourbon is not distilled up to that level. Uh, it's not distilled up to that level of, uh, of uh, ethanol. It's, it can only go up to about 75 proof, um, or sorry, 150 proof or 75% alcohol and be still called bourbon. And so what that leaves is vodka's odorless, colorless, tasteless, but bourbon has, you can still taste the grain. So if you make a bourbon with more rye than, say, corn, you know, just like you can taste a piece of rye bread versus a piece of wheat bread, you can taste that difference in uh, in different bourbons. Some are sweeter. Some have been aged in the barrel longer. Some are darker colors. And, you know, vodka is pretty much clear and tasteless and odorless um, across the range. Um, but bourbon is really different from manufacturer to manufacturer, and that's what makes it. If you're a foodie, that's what makes bourbon so fun to drink. I don't know if you're familiar with Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation, but he says that uh, vodka is for rich women on diets. So, you know, you've got you've got people out there that are already already blazing the trail uh, going against the vodka. Don't worry about that. I want to talk a bit about uh, and bacon. I eat bacon at least five days a week. I can honestly say that I'm a thick cut bacon guy. I go to a, a, a particular place here in New York City where they, they slice it for me on request. I mean, I take my bacon pretty seriously. But I can't pretend to know much about it other than that I love it. Tell me what you learned about t- – tell me about bacon. The bacon is the candy of the, you know, the food world. It is, uh, it is awesome. And when 
I, I traveled around to, to bacon, uh, to pig farms, basically, for the next six months, which did not smell as good as the distilleries, I can tell you. But when you talk to people who are passionate about pigs and pig farms, you it, it's incredible. And it was an incredible journey. And what I learned about bacon um, was also equally astounding because bacon really um, there's a huge difference between what you're talking about going to a specialty purveyor and having them slice the bacon for you and and going to the grocery store and picking up bacon the first that it's really the difference between dry aged and wet aged bacon uh, it's like a dry aged steak uh, and the taste difference there so when you take supermarket bacon and you throw it in a frying pan and by god bacon should be fried not uh, nuked don't do that to your bacon and uh, so you fry up some bacon, and if you've got supermarket bacon, it shrinks. It shrinks by as much as 50%, and we don't like shrinkage because uh, that's what's happening there is it's just evaporating out the water, right? But dry-aged bacon has already lost its water, and so when you buy pound-for-pound dry-aged bacon versus supermarket bacon, it may seem more expensive, but what you're actually buying when you buy supermarket bacon is a lot of water, um, but the flavor profile of dry-aged bacon is incredible. And, of course, bacon has a huge, long history in America. In fact, Uncle Sam was named for a, a bacon manufacturer named Uncle Sam Wilson, who made uh, who's a pork producer during the War of 1812. Uh, there in New York, Wall Street is named Wall Street because they built the wall to keep the pigs out. There were wild pigs running around South Manhattan. I'd say, given Wall Street today, that that effort was probably unsuccessful. But – uh, bacon has a long, long history uh, in the U.S., and our bacon is the best bacon in the world. You go to you go to England and you order bacon. What they'll give you is something called uh, back bacon. Um, our bacon comes off the belly of the pig, so it's fattier, and fat equals flavor. You go to Canadian bacon. Uh, that's not bacon. That's ham. Uh, so I, I feel like there's no greater representation of American superiority over our brothers and sisters to the north than the difference in our bacon. Their bacon is just, it's just B-team. It's just, they call our, our bacon streaky bacon. Uh, I just call it delicious. But our bacon, our bacon is awesome. And when you add those two, these bourbon and bacon are not mild flavors, right? They don't go meekly across the palate. They boldly walk in like an American in, in Paris, right? You know when we're there. And so when you add these two uh, recipes, they really make, a huge difference. And you can be the world's worst cook, but if you throw some bourbon and bacon in there, man, you're going to be a success. All right. So give me oh, just everybody. I, I know you're going to ask me this on Twitter and Facebook anyway. So I want to repeat it. We're speaking to Morgan Murphy here. He's the author of the book, Southern living bourbon and bacon, the ultimate guide to the South's favorite foods. And also uh, really for some of us, I'm sure just kind of a lifestyle bourbon and bacon. Um, I want to, what is the best dish that comes to mind for, for somebody who's not a, not a, a highly skilled chef that brings both bourbon and bacon to the table. Well, if you can, if you can read, you can, you can uh, make the recipes in my book. I go through them step by step. About a third of them I, I did myself. Uh, and then I called a bunch of friends who are chefs across America and asked for their best, their best recipes. So one of my favorites, I don't know, I hear after the holidays, everybody's on a diet. And I can tell you that my books are not known to be diet books. If, uh, I mean, you'll, you'll probably gain 30 pounds just leafing through bourbon and bacon. But if you're on a diet and uh, maybe you're on the Atkins diet, like 
a bacon-wrapped uh, beef tenderloin. That's a really easy recipe to to whip up. Or uh, I've got a bacon-wrapped, bacon-covered roasted turkey. Uh, so if you want to make turkey, turkey is usually a dry old bird, but if you want to make it flavorful, adding bacon is an awesome way to do that. Um, I do a lot of a lot of beef dishes like that with bacon in it. Also, uh, pork with apples, bacon, and sauerkraut. Delicious this time of year and actually pretty healthy for you. Uh, if you want to go not so healthy, um, some of the desserts in here like uh, bourbon and bacon maple cupcakes, um, it sounds crazy, but they're the best cupcake you will If ever by have. crazy you mean amazing, Morgan. Amazing. That's what, it, that's what I mean. And, you know, I always say bacon is for all three, uh, three meals of the day. So uh, we can't leave out breakfast. I put in some bacon and bourbon waffles. So if you like waffles and you want to blow the socks off of uh, your girlfriend, boyfriend or something one morning, uh, bacon and bourbon waffles are the way to do it. Can I ask you for for the uninitiated in, in the ways of, of bourbon and with, and with bacon? By the way, I will say if any if any of you have access to a butcher or or just a you'll know. I mean, if if they can slice the bacon for you, the difference between that and what you'll get in a little plastic packet in the grocery store is is substantial. And I, I've been on both sides of this equation. And I can tell you, if you really love bacon. Go for the good stuff if you can. It's a little more expensive, but it's, it's worthwhile. But I don't know much about bourbon at all. I'm actually, I'll admit this to you, Morgan, I'm mostly a tequila drinker and a wine drinker. Uh, yeah. But on the on the bourbon side of things, if somebody wanted to sort of start to experiment, they want to get their feet wet with bourbon, what are some good, start, what are some good starter options? Well, I love, and, and people laugh when I say this, but one of my favorite uh, bourbons is one called Old Forester. Now, Bourbons seem to fall into some category. There's old scout, and old granddad. So they're either like they're the olds, or you know they're the they have military titles like Colonel Blanton's and Colonel Newt's and all of those. So Old Forester is a very old brand. They were the first uh, manufacturer to put actually bourbon in bottles. Before that, you went down to your local bar and you took your own jug or whatever, and they filled it up. But Old Forester is cheap. I mean, you could run your car on it. It's uh, it's like 20 bucks a, a gallon, practically. But it is one of the best bourbons out there. It's deep. It's rich. It's smoky. It's it's pretty sweet. So for new, new bourbon drinkers, you won't have to invest a lot of money to try it. Um, and it's one of the oldest bourbon brands in existence. It's a great it's a great bourbon made by um, Brown Foreman, and they. They make much more expensive bourbons, but but Old Forester is one of the best. So I say to new bourbon drinkers, give that one a shot. Uh, if you've got some uh, some cash to spend and you want to maybe go with a more expensive bourbon, uh, and your local liquor store has it because people make a run on it. But I mentioned Colonel Blanton's earlier. That bourbon bottle um, is instantly recognizable to most people because it's the most uh, used bourbon in any movies or photographs it's a beautiful bottle it looks like um i guess it looks like a small hand grenade actually but it's a it's a kind of octagonal bottle but it's got a horse on the top and if you're a real drinker you collect all eight horses that they they put out every year but it's a very rich bourbon too and it's an excellent easy sipping bourbon it's not one i'd put in a cocktail because it's so expensive uh, but it is one that you might want to sip sip neat People always ask me, how do you drink bourbon, right? Do you, do you have to drink it neat? 
Um, and I, I tell them, you know, drink it however you like. But I recommend uh, a big ice cube uh, and a little water because water will open it up and take down the proof and allow you to taste those grains we were talking about earlier a little easier. Morgan Murphy is the author of the book, Southern Living, Bourbon and Bacon, The Ultimate Guide to the South's Favorite Foods, available on Amazon.com. You can also go to uh, Morgan's site, morganmurphy.com, and uh, also Morgan is a veteran and currently in the uh, Navy Reserves. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Come back anytime. Hey, you bet. It's great being with you. That's morganmurphy.actually. Oh, sorry, morganmurphy.co, everybody. Morgan, thanks again. Uh, Team, we'll be back right after the break. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. we got a bunch of calls up. We can take some more. 888-900-3393. Uh, Mike in New York, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck. It's Matt, actually. Oh, Matt. Sorry, I had the wrong uh, wrong name here on the screen. Pardon me. You were saying, Matt. Uh, you know what? They, I've been, they've been doing that to me my whole life. I don't know. When they hear Matt, they think Mike. Everyone always thinks my yeah. name is Bob, so I hear you. I'm always like, my name is Buck. And then person goes, okay, Bob. So I, and I know. The, you know, the, the, the struggles we have, my friend. So what's on your mind? Uh, just two questions about the uh, Russian hack. Yep. The first one is, how come they don't refer to it as the alleged Russian hack since nothing has really been proved yet? At least well, after the today, they would say that the, the intelligence community has showed proof to Donald Trump. Trump is saying, um, and just also to be clear, well, alleged is usually alleged used— before? Yeah, well, but alleged is is used as a as a modifying uh, modifying term so that it's clear that an individual is not yet proven guilty, right? So that's that's usually when people start throwing alleged in there, um, and it's it's really also for legal reasons. You, know, you you can't say necessarily the you know you, you don't want to say the 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 murderer you know John Doe. You want to say the alleged murderer until they're either proven guilty or not, right? So that's where alleged comes in. But go ahead. Okay, and, and the second thing is, how can they subscribe uh, motive to the Russian hack to be to interfere with the election? How do they know what the motive was? Well, if you, you believe this Washington Post report, and I should point out that the Washington Post has had two major stories completely undermined by its own admission in the last oh, five, six weeks. One of them was about fake news and the impact of fake news on the election. That was based on an anonymous research outfit that has since been completely discredited. So there are numbers about the impact and how many people saw fake news. That was all all bogus. Uh, They didn't retract the story. They did a correction. But when you correct the underlying premise of the entire story, it's a de facto retraction. Same thing, by the way, with the hack of the electrical grid through a utility in Vermont. They initially said that that looked like it was Russian hackers, and we've since found out that that's nonsense, too. Okay. Um, I just managed to lose my train of thought, though. What were you saying a second ago? No, I said, you know, they're subscribing motive without— Oh, motive. I'm sorry. Yes, the Washington Post 
Report. Thank you, uh, Matt. Sorry about that. Washington Post is saying that there are uh, intercepts, which would be signals intelligence, I would assume, uh, intercepts out there of Russian senior Russian figures, perhaps figures, perhaps top Kremlin figures, you would think possibly uh, saying that not only were they excited Trump won, but looks like they had a hand in helping him win. But again, that's the Washington Post. It's based on leaked reporting, and it's unverified. That is not verified by the intelligence community. But it does prove another point, and that is that the intel community, there are people in the intel community who are actively trying to undermine uh, undermine the Trump presidency because they couldn't just release the actual official report. They had to also leak some additional damning information while the report is out there to add a a negative a sort of a, a negative framework a negative tint to all of this uh but matt that's what i got for you and all that thank you for calling in from new york please call back again anytime shields high uh we got some space in the lines we got some other calls up Eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three. by the way it is friday which means it's action movie quote friday so if anyone want to bring it unless it's already been brought you should uh sh- let's show me what you got but the one proviso here, it has to actually be an action movie, okay? If you call in with the Gone with the Wind quote, I'm sure there are some scenes that get your heart pounding in that movie, but it is not an action movie. So we're looking for, you know, raw, uh, generally steroid-enhanced lead actors uh, with uh, huge machine guns firing improbably against impossible odds. More coming up. Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team Buck, welcome back into the Freedom Hut. We're joined by Brooke Rogers. She's a contributor to Heat Street and our unofficial millennial expert. What's up, Brooke? <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Happy New Year. Haven't had a chance to speak to you yet in 2017. Are, are you ready yeah, for the Trump apocalypse? Oh, you know, I mean, I have canned food stocked. I'll be fine. <laughs> It'll be she, great. She jokes, everyone, and yet we have a survivalist expert joining us in the next hour. <laughs> Brooke, so let's get oh. into uh, let's get into some of the things. Oh yeah, no, we just figured it'd be kind of fun. I want to ask him about uh, you know what what happens next time we get lost in the woods stuff. So let's let's get into some pieces here. Uh, first of all, Washington Post, which has had a rough time. I mentioned two of their major corrections slash retractions over the last month or so. Um, they had a little problem about their anti-Trump Women's March coverage. What happened? <laughs> um, they used the uh, male sign instead of the you know the symbol for uh, male instead of the symbol for female on the cover for uh, the Women's March, which is pretty. I mean, it's not it's not so much like offensive in any way. Of course, it's just hilarious. I think some people are offended by it because. 
uh, I don't know, the men, the men get everything group was a little bit offended by it. There was some uh, some backlash on Twitter, but they fixed it. They, you know, they redesigned it to, to symbolize the women's one. And um, it, it it all turned out fun. I think I think they were able to kind of regroup pretty quickly, but it was pretty funny for them to have. The, and it was out for a long time. And how do you make that mistake? <laughs> just like, I don't understand who just forgot to Google what the female sign was and find it. But, uh, yeah, it was. there was a little bit of backlash on Twitter. They, they fixed it. They apologized, which is a little bit ridiculous, But and then put up the put up the females one. But the, I, I'm yeah, going to get a little great. I want to get a little graybeard millennial, millennial here for a second, although I don't know if I think I technically okay. may have just been aged out of the millennial cohort, which makes me sad. Uh, but you have the symbols for male and female, in case everyone didn't know this. The male symbol, which is this sort of circle with the arrow pointing off of it, is the symbol for Mars. And the female, which is a circle with what looks sort of like a cross at the bottom of it, is the symbol for Venus. And these were first used to uh, break down male and female, uh, the male and female sexes, by uh, Carl Linnaeus in 1751. He was a Swedish botanist, physician, and zoologist. He is also the guy responsible for naming organisms through binomial nomenclature. Boom, boom, shake, shake the room, everybody. What do you think about that, <laughs> Ms. Rogers? That's great. I mean, it's it's nice that we're still using them and they're still around, considering all the uh, the non the confusion and nonsense about gender recently. I mean, I can't believe. Honestly, I'm surprised there wasn't backlash for them using it at all, um, because you know, as we know, it's not just a women's march; it's a march for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Do they have? And I ask this in all seriousness because sometimes I I, I try to be uh, I'm trying to make sort of a joke, and then I find out, oh no, that's a real thing. Um, is there is there a like a, a gender neutral symbol too? I've seen one where they just overlap the one with the cross on the bottom, the one for Venus and the one uh, for Mars on top of each other. So it's just one circle with like the two things sticking out. Um, but at that point, why even use it? Like, what what's the point of it? I mean, you can. Whoa. It's just a little weird. I yeah. just checked this out on the on the inner on the interwebs. And uh, there is a sign for being transgender is the Mars sign, but with a line through the sort of arrow off the circle. Uh, I did not know that. I, I just learned this. And there's even a uh, her, hermaphrod. They have a hermaphrodite version of this, which has both the cross and the arrow off the circle. So, yeah, I just you know I, there we go. Learning something new all the time. Lay it down, Ms. Rogers. Lay it <laughs> yeah. down. All right. There's so too, uh, speaking too much going on. I know. We're, we're dropping so much knowledge here. It's 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 crazy <laughs> town. Uh, the Woman's March on Washington is becoming a joke, writes the New York Post. I don't even know this was a thing. What's happening? Well, the Woman's, the woman's March was kind of put together hastily um, after, you know, as, as a response to Trump winning the election, I think at some point it was supposed to be like they were going to block the roads going into D.C. and like stop the inauguration somehow. Or like it was like this big I mean, it, it was just kind of uh, an emotional response to this. It wasn't really well thought out. Um, and then, of course, as soon as they create this idea that the Women's March is going to happen and they get kind of they get the idea of what they want to do. It just starts to break down because, as identity, as identity politics always does, it starts causing these rifts within uh, the community of people who – it was just supposed to be like – originally it was called 
um, the Million Women March. And uh, then they got backlash because it sounded like a cultural appropriation of something that um, African-American women did in 1997. So they were just using the same name, Million Women March, in D.C. And it was like, no, you can't use that because that was you're appropriating the struggle of like black. You know, so it's like that that thing happened and then they changed it to just the Women's March. And then people got angry because they said that they were appropriating the idea from um, Martin Luther King Jr. And so it was just they can't win. And I think at this point it's becoming it's becoming less about, you know, their opposition to Donald Trump and more about these feuds that go on within that community uh, of people within this like big you know social justice warrior community about like what are we actually saying what are we what are we you know who's at the forefront of this it was you know three feminists put it together and now as it always does it's just falling apart um i i think it's still planning they're still planning on doing it but at this point who knows because we've still got a couple weeks before the inauguration and anything could happen before then Tell me about this piece on Red Alert Politics. No men allowed. Feminists push for female-only workspaces. Oh, my. I feel like there'll be a lot of incense and candle burning in these spaces. But perhaps that's a microaggression. You're close. You're close. But actually, they have on-demand blowouts, a lactation room, and beauty products all over the the place. So you're close. Wait, are you for realsies or are you joking? No, no, no. I'm for real. I'm for real. This, that membership is almost two grand a year, and women basically it, it's like a it's like a WeWorks thing, but they're calling it SheWorks, um, and they they rent these large uh, large rooms that you know workspaces, and it's women only. My favorite part about this is that the only male who comes in is the their uh, AV guy, which is hilarious to me. I'm like you, so you couldn't find an AV girl. Like that's the, where you draw the line is you're like, no, that one guy can come in. Cause no one knows AV, <laughs> but they have this, they have these huge rented out spaces. They have all of these, uh, it sounds more like a salon than a workspace. Cause again, they have like, they have hairdressers on, on demand. And, uh, you just, I, I, I guess it's just that they don't want to work around men, which, you know, they call this a feminist thing, but it's not, it's, the whole point of feminism is equality, and that's not equality. That is self-imposed segregation. They're saying not we cannot work around men. We can't even be around men. So we're going to move to co-working spaces where we do not allow men. And, you know, we live in a capitalist society. If they want to do that, if there's demand for that, they're certainly welcome. But I don't think they can call it feminist if they're creating these spaces that are man-free as, you know, quote-unquote man-free, just because they, they, they want a safe space. The whole point of the feminist movement is proving that we, we have what it takes. We can make it in whatever you know we're strong women and then they're saying no actually we need to remove ourselves from any tough situations from any situations where we feel uncomfortable and that includes any situation where a man is involved so i don't know it's it's, it's a very weird uh reaction to the safe space ideology that's coming out of and you know the thing is that it comes from colleges these kids are graduating and they're ending up in these uh in the in the work world and they're just creating safe spaces outside of outside of grad school and college. Uh, so I see on page six here of the New York Post that, uh, and I may be breaking this news to you, but I want to get your reaction, Brooke. Chris Brown uh, is going to fight Soldier Boy in the ring. Floyd Mayweather is going to help promote this. Apparently a Twitter social media war between Brown and, well, between Mr. <laughs> Brown and, I don't know, whatever. Mr. Oh Chris Brown God. and Mr. Soldier Boy, I don't know his real name. 
um, uh, is going to be settled. They're going to fight it out for three rounds. It's going to be a pay-per-view. By the way, I think that this could set a precedent because I see all these Twitter feuds between media personalities and the news side of things. And, man, I mean, could you imagine, like, some of the some of the Fox <laughs> peeps throwing down with MSNBC? I'd pay to see it. Oh, my, yes. I think this could be, yeah, I will watch this on HBO. I would rent this. I would rather rent this than the Rousey fight. That only lasted 42 seconds. This is going to go on, off on, you know, it's going to go offline. It's going to go online. It's going to be great. I love it. I, I think it's actually kind of amazing because, first of all, you, you're taking your Twitter fight offline. And that's like basically saying, let's take us outside, which I love. I love that chutzpah. That's great. I, I completely approve of that. Um, also, I didn't even know Soldier Boy was still around. I haven't heard about him since like 2008. So uh, good for him. I'm glad that he's still, you know, literally throwing punches and out there. Um, but also, I think that when it comes down to it, this is just going to be like a mediocre, probably not long lasting fight. N- neither of their managers are going to let them get super beat up because they have to like go tour and yeah, record and. You know, I mean, I, but it's, I think it's a, it's a great idea. I think it's uh, something that we should. <laughs> it's, it's a danger. I, of a I might, fight. I might have to put some of those, some of those uh, beta males at uh, at Salon and the Young Turks and these other places on notice. You bring it to, you bring it to the blaze. You better bring the heat, son. All right, Brooke Rogers, <laughs> contributor. Speaking of heat, contributor to Heat Street. You can follow her at BKE Rogers on Twitter. Brooke, thanks so much for joining. Great to have you. Have a good weekend. Absolutely. Thanks for having me as well. Team, we'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Uh, team, there is a uh, there are some breaking news reports right now about a shooting at Fort Lauderdale Airport, uh, and it turns out that uh, Ari Fleischer, former Bush administration uh, spokesperson, was there. He tweeted out. Uh, let me actually, I'll pull up right now. Ari's. Uh, he tweeted out that. What did he say here? Um, I'm at Fort Lauderdale Airport. Shots have been fired. Everyone is running. He says the police said there's one shooter. There are five victims and all seems calm now. This is just in the last hour, but the police aren't letting anyone out of the airport, at least not where I am. Um, so police seem to have have captured the shooter. There are numerous wounded and this is at Fort Lauderdale Airport. Uh, as I get more information on this, I'll share it with you. But I do see that breaking news. Um, OK, uh, let's get into some calls here. We've got more to take. Uh, Stacy in Oklahoma, you're on the Bucks Action Show. Welcome. Hi, Buck. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Hey, I had a question for you. Um, there seems to be a lot of focus on Russian aggression in the news. You can't turn on anything anymore without hearing Russia the first two minutes. And I was wondering, in your experience, why there is so much focus on Russian aggression when we seem to have this love fest for Saudi Arabia, we, when we have actual intel telling us that Saudi Arabia has attacked us or funded attacks on U.S. soil. Could you explain that? Because I just don't understand it. 
Well, it's it's you're asking a couple of questions that are that are big questions. So I'll I'll try to get get in, into as much of it as I can. First on on why we're I mean the the focus on Russia is is pretty clear. The focus on Russia is because um, it's a means of undermining the Trump uh, presidential victory and hobbling his administration from the start. So that's what that comes from. Um, I think that's I think that's pretty uh, that's pretty straightforward. If Hillary Clinton had won the election. Uh, I am very confident we would not have heard very much at all about the hacking. Okay, so we start with that. Uh, as to Saudi Arabia, that's uh, th- there's some layers of, of complexity that to be for the sake of accuracy we have to get into uh, the, the Saudi state as a as a uh, as a whole has not funded an attack or rather has not you know planned an executed attack against the United States. Uh, some people with connections in the Saudi government and even to the royal family have certainly funded terrorism and Wahhabism uh, around the world and have very direct ties to radical Islam are radicalized themselves, perhaps not uh, openly. Um, but the, I, I assume you're referring mostly to the lost pages in the 9-11 report, right? That's Or, or, or is there something else about Saudi Arabia that has well, gotten your attention? It- it's the Lost Pages, and also it's the female that came from Saudi Arabia for San Bernardino attacks. It's, there there's certain things that have occurred that I would think as a citizen would make us a little more suspect about who and what is coming out of that state into our country, yet we seem to just have this odd relationship with them where we probably shouldn't be in bed with them, but we are. We just released Gitmo detainees to Saudi Arabia. I just, it logically, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, what, what, uh, what? <laughs> sorry, what doesn't make sense to you? I'm, I'm that that the media is because we understand why they're focused on Russia, right? So mm-hmm. you're wondering why yeah. they don't talk more about Saudi Arabia. I mean, the Gitmo yeah. detainees is the Obama administration doing what they've said all along they're going to do and this is just obama legacy hunting in the very last days of his presidency mm-hmm. uh with the saudis yeah i mean the saudi is the is the is the heartland of jihad i mean the saudis have been exporting jihad for a long time but we need the saudis as a counterbalance against the iranians especially now that a nuclear iran is more likely uh we also still despite the fact that we've made a lot of strides in energy uh, need Saudi a Saudi hand in stabilizing the oil markets, um, and they are an effective counterterrorism partner when they want to be. But uh, Stacey, you're asking very good but very big questions, and unfortunately, I'm running into a hard break here. Um, but do please uh, con- continue to raise these issues and call back, and we'll talk more about it. Team Hour Three coming up. I'll be right back. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. freedom across the nation this is the buck sexton show team buck welcome back to the freedom hut great to have you as always our three of freestyle friday is upon us you can call in with your questions comments uh, anything you got in mind including action movie friday quotes bring it let's see what you got but first we have Mark Pendergrass with us now. He is the author of the book, 
For God, Country, and Coca-Cola, the definitive history of the great American soft drink and the company that makes it. Mark, great to have you. Very interesting book. Thank you. Glad you've been enjoying it. So, uh, so, so, tell us a bit about uh, about about Coca Cola and this. I mean, this book, which you very kindly sent to me, is uh, what is it? I'm trying to get the full about 500 pages, give or take, of the history of this iconic American company. A lot of fascinating information in here. Walk us through a bit of the history of Coca Cola. Well, I love the early history. Uh, Coke was invented by a guy named John Pemberton in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1886. And it had a little bit of, you know, it was named Coca-Cola because the two principal drug ingredients were coca leaf, which has a little bit of cocaine in it, and cola nut from Africa, which has uh, caffeine in it. Uh, nowadays, people don't think about that too much. The cocaine was taken out in uh, 1903, or at least most of it, uh, although coca leaf is still used uh, to make Coca-Cola. Uh, co the, the company uh, has the right to import whole coca leaf uh, into Maywood, New Jersey, where it's uh, decocainized before it's used in, in the drink. You know what's interesting so wait, is, is is cocaine that a byproduct of the of making Coca-Cola still? In a sense, yes, it is because they take the cocaine out before they use the fluid extract of coca leaf. So it's done under government supervision. Uh, a lot of it is used in uh, medicine. Uh, cocaine is actually uh, used in its pure form uh, in some operations. Um, but a lot of it is, is destroyed or, or used in experimentation with animals or whatever. Um, what's interesting is Pemberton himself thought cocaine was a wonder drug at the same time that Sigmund Freud was reading the same articles and thought it was a wonder drug, and a lot of people did. Um, and Coca-Cola was called a nerve tonic. There, there was this theory at the time that um, – there, uh, a very, uh, it was kind of a the disease du jour was called neurasthenia. And the idea was they had just discovered the whole nervous system uh, a couple of decades before. People thought that you had a finite amount of nervous energy, and if you used it up because you were a high-power businessman or a sensitive woman, you needed some kind of uh, drug product to, to make you better, and, and that's what Coca-Cola was. It was also uh, supposed to be uh, good for headaches um, or stomach aches, and it actually is. <laughs> it is. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, it is good for that. Go ahead. <laughs> but what happened was uh, Pemberton himself was a morphine addict, and he was interested in cocaine as a way to get off that habit, which uh, it failed to cure him of. And he died uh, of stomach cancer uh, and his addiction. Um, uh, just to be clear, I meant Coca-Cola is good for headaches. Sorry, everybody. The caffeine in it, which replaced the cocaine. <laughs> Pardon me. That's right. Coca-Cola, right. having coffee or, take, or drinking Coke when you have a headache can be very useful. <laughs> not in the original form. I'm not advocating that. Go ahead. Sorry. That's right. Well, you know, the original form, it was a very mild amount of, of, of cocaine. It wasn't what you'd get from from a street hit or anything like that. And I'm well, I, sure I assume that it probably would have a similar effect to caffeine, which does, uh, what is it, dilate the blood vessels, especially around the head, which is why caffeine is, is good. Caffeine is in migraine medicine. 
anyway, go ahead, sir. Sorry yes, to interrupt. It is. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I wrote this, this book about coffee also, uh, about caffeine. So I'm, I'm a big caffeine fan. But I chewed coca leaf when I was in Peru, and they give you coca leaf tea. And it's pretty mild. Uh, I, th- I think that what's bad about it is when you concentrate it artificially. At any rate, be that as it may, Pemberton died. And the drink would have probably died with him had not another pharmacist named Asa Candler gotten hold of it. And he's the one, along with uh, an unsung hero named Frank Robinson, who who had worked with Pemberton, who made the drink famous. And in the 1890s, they began to get letters from women saying, would you please stop advertising this as a medicine? Because I just like this stuff, and I don't want to have to feel like I'm sick uh, to to uh, drink it, and they began to get away from the medical claims and more say that it was delicious and refreshing, which is they had always said that, but they were they they shifted the focus, and then when the Spanish American War came, the U.S. government wanted to uh, tax Coca-Cola as a medicine, and Coke said no 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 it's not a medicine, it's just a soft drink. And they won their case. So that was. There were a lot of reasons. Another reason they took the cocaine out was that it was a southern beverage, and there was during the Jim Crow racist era when black people were getting lynched frequently. There were these rumors that the cocaine and Coca-Cola was making uh, black men crazed, and they were raping white women and killing their bosses. And because it had begun to be uh, bottled by then, recently, um, it was more of a democratic drink that anybody could could get. And that was another reason why they they took the cocaine out of it. So a lot of this history is entwined with the social era and with the social issues of their time. Uh, I don't think we're going to have time to go through a whole lot of it, but... You know, it was entwined with, with, uh, and still is, with health concerns. Uh, Coke is blamed a lot for the obesity epidemic. Uh, With environmental concerns, at one point they had uh, purchased about one-third of the landmass of Belize in order to uh, cut down the rainforest and grow oranges for Minute Maid, which they own. Uh, And they ended up not being able to do that and donating it, very graciously uh, as a national park. So Coca-Cola, you know, it's just this, it's a non-essential product. It's mostly sugar water with this great mystical magic formula, which I found a copy of and have in the back of my book. Um, But it really... Wait, so the Coca-Cola formula is no longer a secret? No, it's not a secret. Uh, It's sitting in my book. (laughs) Um, Look at that. I I thought they still kept that thing under wraps. I didn't know anything. Well, they do keep it under wraps, and, of course, they said, no, that's not the real formula. The formula that I have is the original formula, and they have changed it in one degree or another since then. Uh, It has, as I pointed out, it doesn't have cocaine in it anymore. But they also reduced the amount of caffeine by half. They changed the kind of acid they use in it. But but it's essentially the the same. Uh, And it has the 7X formula in there, which is the seven essential uh, uh, oils that they put in. What is the connection, by the way, between – and we we do have a few minutes, Mark, if you do. So I wanted to ask you for a couple – a little more on some of the specifics in the chapters here. Um, there's yeah. a connection, isn't there? We had a we had a Christmas expert on recently who said that your sort of visual pers- or your visual conception of Santa Claus 
is tied to the Coca-Cola company. Oh, absolutely. In, in 1931, the company hired an artist named Haddon Sunblom to create uh, some ads with uh, Santa Claus in them. And at first he used a retired Coke salesman, but when he died, he used himself as the uh, model for Santa Claus, who was a big, jolly guy who always wore red, Coca-Cola red, and who loved not only cookies and milk, but Coca-Cola. And that really determined our image of, of what Santa Claus looks like. Until then, St. Nick was tall and gaunt and sometimes wore orange uh, or yellow or blue. Uh, and from then on, he was always a big fat, or, or he was a little elf, like in the, the, the poem that we all know from the late 19th century. So, yeah, Coke determined that. What's more interesting and what people don't usually think about is the reason that they wanted to do this was that in 1912, the U.S. government had sued Coca-Cola and almost put them out of business. And they were suing them over the fact that they had this drink that had a drug in it, you know, caffeine, uh, which they were giving to children. And they thought that was bad. So ever since then, Coca-Cola never showed a child under the age of 12 drinking Coca-Cola. Uh, but that didn't mean they didn't want to attract young consumers they realize that if you can get people addicted to your product young that that's a good thing so santa claus was part of part of uh, that process of appealing to children which they were masters at so santa in a sense because he's wearing coca-cola red is uh, was almost turned in the in the sort of western imagination into a coca-cola mascot well, yes. When I was a child growing up in Atlanta, uh, <clears throat> we had a little foot-tall stuffed, uh, stuffed Santa Claus who held uh, a very small Coca-Cola in his hand. And I just went to my cousin's house for Christmas in Atlanta, and lo and behold, there it was. <laughs> the same little Santa Claus holding a miniature Coke bottle. I love that. Uh, you know, it's, it's a big When did the company, when did the company become this... This this global behemoth, by the way. I mean, you mentioned uh, owning a third of Belize. When did because Coca Cola now o owns a tremendous amount of of other brands and companies, right? I mean, it, it's it's huge yeah, currently yeah. and has been for some well, time. Until un, until 1955, they only had one product, and it was uh, one size. It was a six and a half ounce hobble skirt bottle of Coca Cola, unless it was in a soda fountain. So it's only been since then that they, they've expanded. Uh, first they had uh, uh, Fanta and then Sprite and now all kinds of other products. Interesting thing is they, they were spreading around the world, particularly after World War II, because during the war, Coca-Cola managed to get itself exempted from sugar rationing, whereas Pepsi did not. And I have a whole chapter in there. Uh, a, a called the $4,000 bottle about uh, Coca-Cola's being available to the servicemen during World War II. At government expense, they paid for Coca-Cola men to be dressed in Army uniforms, shipped overseas, and to they uh, set up 64 bottling plants behind the lines because Coca-Cola was deemed to be an essential morale booster for the troops that if they could get a hold of a bottle of Coca-Cola, it would really lift their spirits because it would remind them of home and what they were fighting for. And it did. It, there's no question. It, it really was an essential morale booster. But it also meant 
that the GI and his bottle of Coca-Cola became highly symbolic of a way of life, and it launched them internationally in a big way, but it also uh, made them the subject of communist propaganda and aggression and spreading rumors that it was bad for you, et cetera. So uh, it's just fascinating. Now, I also have a chapter called Coca-Cola Uber Alles about Coca-Cola being inside Nazi Germany, even while it was supposed to be this great patriotic drink. <laughs> so it's just an amazing, amazing story. I mean, Coca-Cola is the second best-known word on earth after OK. It is the single most widely distributed product on earth. It, it's it's just an astonishing story, uh, particularly when it's really a non-essential uh, product. Mark Sugar Pendergrass water. is the author of Uncommon Grounds and also, which is the book on coffee, and also now, uh, For God, Country, and Coca-Cola, the, the Definitive History of the Great American Soft Drink and the Company that Makes It, available now on Amazon.com. I have a copy. I am reading it. I recommend you do, too. Mark, thanks so much for joining us again. Great to have you. Thank you. Take care. Uh, team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. All right, we got some calls. Let's take them. Uh, Steve in Michigan, you're on the Bucks Action Show. Welcome. Yeah, happy New Year to you, Buck. Thanks for taking happy my New call Year to you. and everything. Uh, I'm here. I'm here. Hello. Yeah, yeah, we're talking to you, buddy. What's up? Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm surprised political correctness isn't killing the uh, housewives of the real ISIS here. Uh, because well, they're trying to. There's a lot of outrage in the UK over it. So yeah, and just I think it was before you went on vacation. Maybe you touched on this. Uh, University of Maryland did not want to. Uh, a few Muslim people there, students didn't want the showing of American sniper there because they said it would be create problems and tensions for the Muslim population on campus. So political correctness is doing its best to to kill that movie being shown on campus. Uh, and I just, you know, where does it stop, so to speak? But I got a movie quote for you. All right, let's hear it. What do you got? Okay, see if I can get this right and everything. We have a bright star alert. Repeat, we have a bright star alert. Uh, I don't know. What is it? Uh, True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, your hero. Oh, man, a bright star alert? When did he say that? I know True Lies pretty well. Well, uh, it came right after he got back to the uh, the Keys there, or got back uh, off the island that he. Oh, oh, is that that's blowout. like the code word for the, there's a nuke inside the United States? Yeah, or either one, uh, you know, a threat, imminent threat of one going off and all, and uh, so he said that. But talk about political correctness when that movie came out, and that was about ninety four or ninety five. I just saw it not too long ago on one of the old movie channels. There was some blowback on that movie from the Arab population. I mean, now they call them Muslims, but some 
you know, in a population bunch said, hey, that's making us look like all a bunch of terrorists and everything, and we aren't, you know, blah, blah, blah. I remember and, they called it uh, Crimson, Crimson Jihad. The guy had like a yeah. like sort of. Oh no, did he have a British accent or no? He's a British actor, but he had a, he actually had this sort of uh, Arab accent. But yeah, Crimson Jihad. I remember that. Right, right, and all, and and there was like I said some blowback. But bear in mind that came out after the first Trade Center bombing, and it may have came out after the uh, Kobar Towers bombing in Saudi Arabia. I mean, to me, my feeling is that movie wouldn't get to first base this day or age. That's oh, no, that's true of a lot of movies, by the way. Go back and watch the Delta Force movies. They have oh, a lot yeah. of guys who are sort of swarthy and uh, and clearly of, of Muslim background, you know, uh, like beating priests and nuns on the airplane. And I mean, it's crazy, like the stuff that it, it, you'd never get away with that now. Plus, you'd never get away with Chuck Norris wearing a cutoff jean jacket uh, with no sleeves, I guess it's a jean vest then, but a cutoff jean vest with a micro Uzi in each hand riding a motorcycle, you, you wouldn't get away with that either, I don't think. Oh, for sure, and everything. How times they haven't changed. Yeah, man. All right, Steve in Michigan, Shield Time, man. Great to hear from you. Thank you for calling in. Uh, we got a little more time here. Let's do Jim in Ohio. What's up, buddy? Jim in Ohio? Bueller? I'm here. I'm here. There we go. What's up, buddy? There we go. I want to disagree with uh, your guest earlier talking about bourbon. Um, I'm from Cincinnati, so I've done the bourbon trail. I'm intimately uh, acquainted with bourbon. Um, bourbon is a Kentucky-only uh, product because they use a specific kind of limestone water to make it. Legally, you can call other things bourbon, but the people who make bourbon in Kentucky are going to disagree with you very strongly about that. Huh. I was unaware of that. What's your favorite bourbon? Four Roses, actually. Four Roses. It's not too expensive. It's tasty, and the the uh, distillery is like an hour from my house. So if you're ever in Cincinnati, the bourbon trail in Kentucky is awesome. So, Or if you're in Louisville or Lexington, I guess. But all right. You get to all right, all right. cool. I will, I will check it house. out. Jim? Thanks for the Four Roses wreck. Shield time, my man. Have a great weekend. Uh, thanks for hanging with the show. And, of course, we'll see you again on Monday and next week and thereafter. Um, team, we've got a lot to chat about coming up here, including how to survive any number of difficult, life-threatening situations, zombie apocalypse, nuclear holocaust, getting lost in the woods. Get that and more coming up here on Freestyle Friday. Back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. Blaze Radio Network. Well, team, I promised on this one, and now I intend to deliver. How do you handle, how do you survive very dangerous uh, and life-threatening situations here? We've got somebody who can talk us through a bunch of scenarios. Creek Stewart. He's a survival expert and lead instructor at the Willow Haven Outdoor Survival School in central Indiana. He's the author of many books, including Survival Hacks, 
over 200 ways to use everyday items for wilderness survival. Creek, great to have you. Hey, likewise. Great to be on today. Thank you so much, sir. We really appreciate it. So please tell all the folks that are uh, Team Buck here, uh, first off, a zombie apocalypse. Let's just have some fun. How do you survive? Is, <laughs> yeah, what are the, it, you, you wake up, you realize that the, the zombie disease or whatever it is is spread all over the place. What do we do? Well, I'll tell you what, I've taught survival skills for almost 20 years, and I am convinced that surviving the zombie apocalypse has to do with choosing your friends. You'd better make sure that you have at least a couple friends in your group who are slower than you are. There you go. So it's like it's outrunning the bear. You just need to be faster than the guy (laughs) next to you. That's right. And I have to say, though, slow walking zombies, way less scarier than the fat than the running kind that you get in, for example, 28 days later. So we we really should specify (laughs) whether these are. And then there's some zombies that are practically like superhuman in that movie with Will Smith. I forget what it's called. Right, right. You know, the slow ones kind of seem fun. The fast ones, not so much. And you also have some advice in case we ever very unrealistically but amusingly find ourselves in the situation of The Hunger Games. Uh, what, what's your? I, I've only seen one of those movies, but I get the idea. Yeah. What's your advice for surviving The Hunger Games, Creek? Well, they're definitely a survival-themed book series and movie. Um, I actually wrote the book, The Unofficial Hunger Games Wilderness Survival Guides, where I teach all the skills mentioned in that book oh. series. But um, you know, The Hunger Games is a wilderness survival scenario with a little bit of, you know, kids chasing kids, uh, you know, to the death type situation. But at the end of the day, it, it's, um, it's about wilderness survival, securing your core four basic human survival needs, shelter, water, fire, and food. And I think those four are really at the core of pretty much every survival situation that you can, that you can think of. All right, now t- take us through. Someone is in a situation where they're out in the woods on a hike. They don't have anything. They don't have any gear or anything on them. And all of a sudden, you realize you're totally lost, and night is falling, and you're solo. Yeah. What do you do to survive out in the woods if you're by yourself and you got nothing? Well, I mean, you're in a you're in a tough you're in a tough situation. Most human instinct says to keep moving and self rescue. Try to find your way out of a scenario like that, but. The, the best thing to do is really stay put. Your, your, your priorities are based loosely on what we call the three survival rules of three. In extreme conditions, you can survive for three hours without shelter, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Ironically, most people freak out about food first, you know. But So in a situation like that, you'd want to stay put, stay where you are. Uh, a moving target is harder to find than one that's sitting still. And, um, and you need to find shelter because it's by far your, your most important survival priority is just getting out of the elements, getting out of the wind, staying dry, and doing your best to regulate core body temperature uh, by either finding or building some kind of shelter and then start thinking about water. Hypothermia is the thing that's going to get you before thirst or hunger then. So staying warm in that sort of situation is clear. We're assuming you're out in the cold somewhere. I mean, if you're, if you happen to be lost in the tropics out of there's you know, probably other things one, you you gotta, gotta avoid the brightly colored snakes, but you know, I'm in in cold areas. You gotta stay warm. How hard is it to make a fire Creek? I mean, I've actually never really tried this. I mean, without a lighter, obviously, or matches. 
I mean, it's, it's a little tricky, you know. I mean, making a fire with sticks is something that certainly requires practice. You know, if you find yourself in a sudden and unexpected survival scenario and you've never done it before, you're probably not going to get it done in that situation either. Uh, but I've got a lot of really cool kind of fire hacks that, um, that would be fun to mention if you've got a second. Yeah, well, what are your fire hacks? Let's do it. Well, I tell you what, fire is my favorite survival skill because, in my opinion, it's the most important of. Did we just lose him? He was about to give us the secret of fire, like Prometheus himself. Creek, buddy, we we lost. <laughs> Creek's like all you need to know to stay alive in the woods. I'm going to give you the skills, the tools. Here's how you make. And we just he just dropped off. Was that a Soros thing? I don't know. Maybe Soros realizes the Trump apocalypse is coming, and if we all know how to make fire, we will survive, and his one-world government status dreams will all come to naught. I think we need a scarier boogeyman than Soros, though, because Soros is like, he's just getting kind of old now, and I don't really think he's as much as much of a uh, of a what's the a frightening character as some of the others that are probably out there on the scene right now. Oh, we got him back. All right. You were telling us about fire hacks. We're with Creek Stewart, right. survival expert. So, Creek. All right. Fire hacks. Let's go. Okay. So a couple of really cool fire hacks. I don't play the guitar, but you'll never find me without at least three guitar picks in my wallet. And that is because guitar picks are an incredible fire tender. They are very flammable. They're made from a substance called celluloid. And if you hit one with a match or a lighter or even a spark, if you process it right, it'll burst into a flame. Great waterproof guitar pick. Really? Wow. Yeah, okay. it's crazy. And so are ping pong balls. Ping pong balls are made from celluloid, too, so they are incredibly flammable as well. Makes a great party trick, too. Um, huh. I, I will tell you, for those listening, also, by the way, I'm a surprisingly good ping pong player. Just FYI. Go ahead, Creek. <laughs> Okay. Well, hey, you know, light one of those on fire. There, it's pretty impressive. So I, st I start the ping pong really fire when I step up to the table, my friend. But go ahead. <laughs> another really great fire tender is Fritos or any snack chip that's fried in oil. When you combine like a corn and an oil, it makes a really great fire tender. Just one bag of Fritos that is conveniently packed in a waterproof bag can make a campfire that you can't put out in even the worst conditions. Really? Well, so, so you light your food on fire if you, if you got freedom. So you light your food on. That's right. You got your priorities straight in survival. You know, food's last, fire's first. So light that stuff on fire before you eat it, for sure. And what's the best? I mean, obviously, if you, if you can't find a, a ready, if you're out in, uh, let's assume we're in, what would it be? Uh, coniferous forest in, you know, let's say, uh, you know, the northern United States somewhere. Uh, yeah. If you can't find a creek, a stream or lake nearby, what do you do about the water situation? I mean, uh, you know, sometimes I see in movies with the guys in the jungle, they hack off a uh, like a vine yeah. or something and they sort of try to drink some of the uh, condensation yep. or some of the, the bill. I mean, is there anything you can do like that? There's, there's truth in that. You know, you can drink uh, the water from vines. Grapevine is probably your most reliable source. But as long as the water from a vine isn't milky and it doesn't stink and it doesn't have a strong, like, rancid flavor, it's probably good to drink. You know, another great source of drinkable 
water in the wild is from trees, like the maple tree or the birch tree. When you cut, like this time of year, if you went out and, and put your knife or put a hole into a maple or a birch tree, it's going to start dripping sap, which is 100% drinkable. Huh. Drink the sap. There we go. I, had, I, I, you, I hadn't thought of that one. Um, but you how, know a really how unique... Go ahead, go ahead. You know, you know a really unique water source that most people don't think of is dew that condenses on grass in the morning. You know, you go out to get your mail in the morning, you walk through your yard, and your socks are soaked. That wow. water is 100% drinkable. You just got to soak it up with like a T-shirt or a bandana or your socks and wring it out. Believe it or not, with one bandana on a heavy dew morning, you can collect up to three gallons of dew in one hour, and it's 100% drinkable. Huh. There we go. All right. Yeah. I'm feeling a little better about my prospects if I get lost out in the middle of the woods by myself, although I'm yeah. still not, not great. I, you guys would much rather have Creek than me, I'll tell you that. Um, but uh, the uh, I want to ask about drinking water from streams and creeks and things like that. I, I think we all have this perception, oh, well, if it's not Brita filtered, you're going to get super sick. Um, how, how do you know, or, or can you know, uh, what, what are the sort of the tells as to whether you could just sort of stick your head in the water and, you know, take a few gulps and not end up with Giardia or something? Well, you don't know all of those biological organisms, are microscopic, you can't see them. So obviously it's not recommended to drink wild water without purification because of exactly what you mentioned, Giardia or Cryptosporidium. However, if your option is die of thirst or drink the water, you always drink the water. The good news is it takes typically three to four days for any of those illnesses from waterborne pathogens to set in. So a lot of the times if you drink bad water in a survival scenario, hopefully you're going to be rescued by the time you get really sick. Ah, I see. So you're kind of rolling the dice on that one. You figure you got to you gotta go with By the way, if you have limited water, Better to ration it or to like hydrate and then let your body process. What's better if you've only got like a if you got a you know just one of those what is it Nalgene bottles on you full of water? That's yeah. all you've got. Uh, you don't know when you're going to get picked up. Do you want to sort of hydrate and and get on the move or just take little sips? Well, if it's a reliable container uh, that's not that's not flimsy or going to bust, I would say. You don't want to ration it to the point where you're just sipping. You want to drink normally. The best storage container for any water you have is your body. So drink normally. There's no sense in rationing uh, unless, unless you have a really flimsy container that could potentially burst. Then you want to just get all that water in your system as fast as possible. One more i got to get in here before we're going to go to a break in a minute. Uh, if you're confronted by a bear in the wild, Creek, yeah. You sound like a guy who knows how to handle bears. What do you do? Yeah, you, it, it depends on if it's a brown bear or a black bear. Let's take the most popular bear in North America, the, the black bear. Uh, black bear, they typically attack out of a defensive attack, which means you've either startled it, you've gotten in between it and its cubs, or you've come up on it while it's eating. It's, it's protecting a food source. Black bears, unlike grizzly bears, brown bears, respond to aggression. So if you're getting charged by a black bear, you want to yell, you want to scream, you want to throw stuff, you want to wave your jacket. Unlike a brown bear, a grizzly bear, which does not respond to aggression, it's, it's, it, it, it's, its response is to be more aggressive. So black bear attacks, you want to be absolutely be aggressive. 
with that bear because mo- more times than not, they're going to respond by running off. And I, and I will say bear attacks are so extremely rare. They're almost negligible. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, uh, I've, I've been around some grizzlies in the wild and, uh, and seen a few black bears too. And usually they just want to go about their business. Yeah. Uh, you have a couple quick tips for if you are caught in a hurricane or a severe storm, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what, if you, if let's say, let's say a storm knocks out your power, knocks out your lights. That's not hard to imagine at all. I, I grew up in Southern Indiana where there was always a big can of Crisco in our pantry. Believe it or not, if you take a strip of T-shirt material or a piece of a cotton mop head and shove it down in the middle of a can of Crisco and light it, that's a candle that will burn 30 days straight. Hmm. Wow. Can you believe that? Look at that. 30 days. I do because you know, you're telling me, but I did not know that. You could cook over it. You can use it for light. You could close off a room and even use that Crisco candle that's going to burn for 30 days as heat. So how do you do it again? If you have Crisco, you just... Yeah, so you got a big tub of Crisco. You take a strip of T-shirt material, you know, about a foot long, and you take a stick or a ruler and jam it right down in the middle of that can of Crisco, just like a wick on a candle. And then All right, you, and you make that. a make a Crisco candle that'll burn for 30 days. That's kind of awesome. That's I might right. just try that out just because. Hey, Creek you know, Stewart is a survival that. expert, everybody, and he's a lead instructor at the Willow Haven Outdoor Survival School in central Indiana. He's the author of many books, including Survival Hacks, Over 200 Ways to Use Everyday Items for Wilderness Survival, available on Amazon.com right now. Creek, thank you so much, sir. Have a great weekend. Appreciate you, Buck. You too. Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. We have Joe in California. Let's bring him on real quick. Joe, I got about thirty seconds for you, but you've been on hold. What's up? Shield tide. Happy New Year, Buck. Happy New Year. Uh, so I'm. Uh, I survived the great unfriending of 2016, and I'm working on my 2017 white guy resolutions. But since there's not much time left, my phone's about to die. I've got an action movie quote for you. I'm not sure. I, I, you know, it's got shooting and dri- and explosions and drive chases, but I don't, I don't know based on your criteria whether or not you will consider it an action movie. But the quote is, you got the guts, drop the gun. You got Which the guts, drop the gun. Which is a precursor to the most awesome fight in the history of uh, movie making. Yeah, you, you got, got the, the guts, guts, drop the gun. gun? Yep. Uh, Commando. No, Jackie Chan, Rumble in the Bronx. Oh, no, yeah. Uh, yeah that's kind of martial arts. I don't know if that's action, well, dude. it is. It, Joe, is but it does have explosions. It does have some machine gun uh, fire. There are lots of big guys. And why? There's so many great action cases. movies. Why does everybody want to expand the definition of action movie? Oh, but Joe, good to hear from you, my friend. As always, Shields High, and thank you for calling in with a quote. You did stump me, but... We'll have to talk about whether martial arts is technically action. I think it's its own genre. Team, I'll be with you Monday and every day next week. Excited to be back in the Freedom Hut. 
Until then, no matter what happens, have a great weekend and keep your shields high. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.